0: Well, thanks all for being here. Good to see you back. Is this helping at all? I should turn this up some okay um, Is that any better? Is that too loud or that's that's good. okay. Um, so it's been a couple of weeks, so a good review is is maybe in order and um, you know we get these presenters and and they they vary in in presentation charisma <laughs> um, uh, Information seems pretty good, though. So um, I thought maybe it would be helpful for us to do this educational thing called spiraling, where we go sort of over the chronology, and then we go back through the readings in Kings, and then we'll go back through how the prophets were interpreting the events at the time. Does that make sense? We're really going to go through the events three times in three different ways. Um, and, And the first thing that's maybe helpful is to give you this rough timeline, I think, that's in the book. And and I'll I'll tell you which dates have sort of ranges to them and which ones don't. The first is, and of course we're looking at these dates entirely in years BCE or BC. So that's before the common era. And we're dating the first king of Israel, the monarchy, that's Saul and then David, somewhere around 1040 BCE. Right. So you'll find a range on that somewhere like 1050, 1040, but this pretty good ballpark... There is a gradient, okay? At that time, remember that there's one kingdom, theoretically, made of 12 tribes. Um, everything goes swimmingly until Solomon dies in 924-ish, what we know for sure. That's a, another rough date. The hard date is 922. That's when the northern kingdom splits from the southern. So, reminder, um, there's 10 tribes in the north that are now called israel kingdom of israel the two tribes in the south are called kingdom of judah right now, now when i say there's two tribes in the south uh, it's a little confusing because really there's just the tribe of judah and there's some levites but there's levites up north as well right so that that's a split group um, So so this is a confusing bit. So for right now, we call all the people Hebrews. If you you say Israelite, 922, you're only talking about the north. These are the lost ten tribes of Israel. Really, it's ten and a half. Half the Levites disappear, right? Lost ten tribes. Lots of interesting theories on where they went to. Like if you're Mormon, they're the Native Americans. (laughs) That's where they went. How they got here, I don't know. Um, 922, though, this is is BCE. That's the division of the kingdoms. Remember, the north is initially um, more prosperous than the south. So the first king in the north, a couple kings down in the north is King Omri. That's the biggest geography that any nation has ever occupied. Um, The south is confined to a county, with Jerusalem being the capital Couple features, reminder um, Elohim is the word for God used in the north. That's God's personal name in the north. That's the equivalent of the Y name in the south. The Bible uses Elohim as a way of not using the Y name, and that's because the Bible's written by Southerners who did not revere the word Elohim as the Northerners did. In case you're interested, Jacob is called Jacob in Israel. In Judah, he's called Israel. (laughs) Of course, we say they're the same person, but remember, what we're reading is the product of the southern kingdom, not the north. Um, Those go parallel until 722. 722 BCE is when the Neo-Assyrian Empire storms down out of Mesopotamia and just swallows up the north completely and, and raises the capital and takes the people. This was a, a, an interesting tactic by the Assyrians to prevent rebellion and ensure compliance. They would take um, citizens from the kingdom of Israel and put a few of them in modern-day Turkey and a few in Iran and a few in Iraq and a few in Saudi Arabia and take some Saudi Arabians and some Iraqis and Iranians and Turkish folks and put them into Israel. And this sort of mishmash that they created had very diverse uh, language, culture, custom, religious uh, rites, scriptures, pantheon, and therefore there was no common ground to form a rebellion. Uh, the Neo-Assyrian folks, you can see their art depicted in, in various world museums. The, the kings are stylistically depicted. You know, like when you go to Egypt, all the pharaohs look alike in art. They didn't. It, it's <laughs> they're forced into a type, except for um, Tutankhamun's father, Akhenaton, um who broke the type. He looked like himself, apparently, and didn't like that. <laughs> so, so they sort of broke all that stuff. Uh, they missed a few. That's how we know all this. Um, Kings of Assyria have plated beards, so they look like dreadlocks. And um, kings of um, the Neo-Babylonian Empire will also have those plated beards. Kings of Assyria always depicted riding in chariots, which are war devices. Uh, so even if they're on a throne, it's on a throne that's in a chariot. Lots of spears, all militaristic stuff. Um, and, and that describes the Neo-Assyrian Empire very well. They, they, they were really sort of the... Uh, um, the military supreme, supreme country at the time until they end up losing out to the Babylonians, which we'll talk about in the course of the events. So the Assyrians gobble these people up completely. They even come south and surround Jerusalem. We read in our readings that they're ultimately, they go away before they can conquer. More on that later. So Judah survives. They survive until... a a series of events. And the one that we hear about first is Josiah goes out on a lark to attack Pharaoh Necho. Pharaoh Necho is coming up from the south. Now this is helpful to know. Egypt has always been geographically isolated. They've never really had to deal with foreign invasions. There's only one incident that if you, you probably learned about this maybe in the ninth grade. There's this period in which the Hyksos overrun Egypt. Those are Semitic people. And then the Egyptians re-overrun the Hyksos and that's about all the trouble Egypt ever had because they're, they're isolated. So they, they were a strong um, resource rich um, community because of their agriculture with the Nile but they never really had to contend uh, with foreign invaders. In contrast that with, with the um, Mesopotamian area in which there were several rival kingdoms sort of fighting it out. Um, in 609 is when Egypt decides that they are are really powerful and they're gonna go carve up the Assyrian empire. So they head north up out of Egypt and they pass through obviously Israel, which is Judah and then Israel, which which are buffer states. Um, Josiah goes out to fight them, who knows why. That would sort of be like the Belgian army fighting against the German blitzkrieg. Um, (laughs) That's not gonna be effective, right? That would be like Rhode Island fighting Texas. Um, Did that appeal to your Texas pride? Uh, it's just really confusing how with inferior military technology and numbers you could expect any sort of good thing to happen. Josiah dies. Um, Nico himself is defeated in 606 at the Battle of Carchemish by Nebuchadnezzar from Neo-Babylon. Uh, that's the end of any question of Egyptian uh, power. Basically after 606 it's confirmed that Egypt is a second world power. Is that, that helpful to say? second-rate country um, compared to the, the empires that existed in Mesopotamia. Um, then the fate of Judah goes a little bit funny. When Egypt, uh, Egypt initially enslaves Judah. When they get beat and they go home, now there's a vacuum, so Judah reasserts themselves as kings. Um, Judah spends a little bit of time as, as sort of a vassal, more about that in a second, to the Neo-Babylonians, but they don't They don't obey, they they break the terms one, two, three times. So here's sort of how this works. There's something called the Babylonian exile that you've heard of. It's really the Babylonian exiles. The first time they break the terms, the army comes down and whips their butt, (laughs) as you would expect. Um, Again, we're, we're, we're contrasting the German army in 1939 with Bratislava. I mean, I just don't really know how to make the comparison well. If you know your, your world history, that's a, that's, a, that's a clear, definitive one. And Bratislava really should not be resisting the Blitzkrieg. They do. So what happens in 596 is that the Neo-Babylonians sort of break their way into Jerusalem, and they take all the valuables. The terms were, you give us the money, we leave you alone. We don't think you're giving us all the money, so we're going to come and do our own analysis and take what we think is lacking. Of course, what they do is they take the most valuable commodities. So you're thinking gold, silver, precious stones. But you should also think, and this is important, the Neo-Babylonians do something the Assyrians don't. The Assyrians just try to weaken people by shipping them out. What the the Neo-Babylonians do is take that tactic, but also think about can they benefit from the human resources of a conquered people and they do something similar to the Manhattan Project where they take the best and brightest back to Babylon and incubate them into think tanks and to bureaucracy. Um, So what does that mean? That means if you are, if you went to graduate school, equivalent, they took you in 596 to Babylon along with the silver and gold, the most valuable commodities. Uh, And this is important for you to know, um, Jerusalem at this time occupies four city blocks. That's really small. I mean, really small. Uh, Babylon, uh, on the other hand, is extremely huge. And the contrast would be something like going from Conyers, Georgia, to New York City. Maybe you've never been to Georgia. And the problem is I'm still not good enough at Texas to do this. It's not even like growing up in Tyler and going to New York City. We've got to think about something smaller than Tyler. What is it? That's fine. Navasota. whatever you want to do. You're from Navasota, and you're like, wow, Camp Allen's a really big building. It's so big. It's pretty big. And then you go to New York City and you're like, what? right i mean in fact it no doesn't matter where you're from you could be from houston when you go to new york city the scale and the magnitude of skyscrapers is almost creates cognitive disruption we all knew there's a bunch of them but that many and so tall the biggest building at camp allen is 30 feet tall and in new york they're all a hundred something stories tall and this is really what happens when the best and the brightest people go to Babylon, is who even, if they've gone to Fairyland. <laughs> Many of them, as you might imagine, never want to leave. <laughs> this will become a problem later. I mean, really, if all you knew was Navasota and then you went to bright lights, big city, would you go back? Maybe. Some people do. We'll read about which ones later. 596. 590, they're not good again, so the Babylonians come back down to strong arms and compliance. They already took the gold and silver, so what's left? Bronze, brass, (laughs) they take that, and then they take the people who have associate of arts degrees. They take the people that were what we would call semi-literate, those are valuable human resources, okay? Then comes the real problem, which is in 586, they put on another rebellion, and this one's full scale, and Babylon comes back. Neo-Babylonians come the third time. And listen, they're much left, but whatever is of questionable value they bring with them. So now we're talking about people who have an eighth grade education. You know who they don't take? The prophet Jeremiah. Do you notice he's been there the whole time? Maybe you're wondering why. He's illiterate. He even says so. The whole book is recorded by his scribe, Baruch. If he could have written it himself, he likely would have, and then he would have qualified for the Babylonian placement exam. Does this make sense? This is why you'll notice that Ezekiel, who is a priest, that means educated, literate, writes his oracles from Babylon. Valuable human resource literacy. They take him. Don't take Jeremiah. Um, just to give you an idea where we're going, this trip to Babylon lasts 46 years because in the year 540 BCE is when the new empire shows up, those being the Medio persians under the rule of Cyrus the Great. So Cyrus overruns the Neo-Babylonian Empire slightly before 540 and then allows in 540... Those willing to go back to Judah to go back. You know, we'll read more about that, but I just wanted to give you the trajectory of where things <coughs> are headed historically. Um, any any timeline questions? Hopefully that was okay. Okay, then um, in the in the interest of spiraling, let's go back to the narrative a little bit. Um, and explore some of those concepts that we mentioned. So one is paying tribute. So remember, tribute is like saying, listen, we really just want your economy and we don't want you to fight us. So if you'll just do that, then we won't kill your people and you can pretend to be in charge of your country, right? Tribute, that's like Vichy France or the Eastern Bloc countries under the USSR that had the veneer of independence, right? But were really puppet regimes. This is what happens when you attribute or a vassal. A vassal is like somebody better than a slave, but at the end of the day, they're like a slave. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, that's right. So the world has run run like this for a long, long time, right? Again, talked about the brutality of the Assyrian war machine before. It's just really helpful to know. These are people who have superior technology to the nations of Israel and Judah, those technologies being they knew how to ride horses. Um, reminder, we read that Reb Sheka, the general, taunts the people of Judah. I'll give you a thousand horses if any one of you can ride them. That's a true taunt. They don't know how to ride a horse. But what about chariots? Chariots are different from riding horses. Chariots are a cumbersome cart of substantial weight that a horse can pull that is a platform for archers. Cumbersome, heavy, not fast. Uh, People, I mentioned this before, didn't realize how to ride a horse properly for some time. They thought that horse like oxen would suffocate if you put a bit in their mouth. That's because an ox breathes through its mouth and its nose. A horse breathes only through its nose, which is why you can put a bit in the horse's mouth. People just didn't figure that out for a long time, and the people of Judah figured that out even later, (laughs) if that makes sense. Took a long time to figure out the saddle too, which is why King David rides into town on a donkey, right? Because donkeys being slow uh, have trouble bucking you off like a horse can do. I don't know if this makes sense. Actually, when someone rides into town on a donkey, it's a symbol that they've completely conquered the city because you're better off fighting on foot than you are on the back of a donkey. <laughs> a horse is different. The other things, remember, the Assyrians are way ahead of the Hebrew people who are like in the, in the early stages of the Iron Age, and the Assyrians are in the late stages. So they're really... Three or 400 years ahead technologically. The Hebrew people, remember under Saul, didn't even know how to sharpen iron weapons. They had to ask the Philistines to do that for them. Um, They still are technologically backward. Um, Principal way of of dealing with people uh, is siege warfare. You know, people who know they're gonna lose a battle would rather not fight it. What they do is hole up in walled cities and that's a war of attrition. So the goal is cut off their food and water when they're starving and they're dehydrated, they'll make a desperate attempt to flee the city or to fight you, and that's where you went. Sometimes you could try to dig under a city wall, but this is still a little bit ahead of sappers. Uh, we don't really see siege engines until we get into the Greek city-states. Those are, those are Greco-Roman inventions. So pretty much you just try to starve people. Hence, in our reading, we hear things like um, eating dung and drinking urine, that, that's realistic. When you don't have anything to drink fresh water wise and the choice is that or dehydration to death, most people will pick that option. Other images that we read not just this week but the last time are about women eating their children uh, because of uh, abject starvation, people chewing on their shoes. Uh, so so this, the, the, these are the number one, number one tactics, if that makes sense. There is a question that sort of dominates our readings today and I just want to point it out early and up front and you may want to have continued conversation about it and uh, this is not any kind of conversation that will reach a resolution that is pleasant for you anytime soon which is if God is on our side particularly in the case of Josiah if God lives in the temple and we're God's people and it's the promised land how'd we lose? the answer almost unequivocally in our reading is the people were bad and so God punished them. Um, That is an answer that is not satisfying to me, but I would like to let you know that is an answer that I drift in and out of throughout my day (laughs) or year. Because... uh, as as linear, logic people, uh, it's very tempting to think that when bad things happen, it's because they were deserved. And you don't have to look very hard for evidence to reinforce that position. You get a speeding ticket, having driven the same 30 miles an hour in a 25 zone for two years. It's never happened. Why did it happen today? Well, I had an argument with my wife this morning. That's why it happened. I've had an argument with my wife many moments, many mornings, (laughs) we forget that. And we have this thing where we can uh, confuse correlation with causation and it's very easy to find a reason we deserved to be punished. Um, Sometimes we do this to other people. if you were around in the 1980s when people found out they had AIDS, of course you deserved it, right? You must have been promiscuous. And then, in fact, when Arthur Ashe said he had AIDS, that was the immediate assumption, not that he'd received it from a blood transfusion, but that he had done something to deserve it. And of course, a lot of people still today don't believe he got it from a blood transfusion. <laughs> we, we gravitate to this mindset that you get what you deserve. And, and I wanna say that is definitely, I think, that the, the commentators opinion of what happens here. Um, It it gets even a little more nuanced than that, that God would normally be on your side, but when you do something wrong, God doesn't just stand back. God engineers punishment. So, So there's a middle position which says, perhaps God spares us the natural consequences of our actions through grace. And if we're disobedient, then God will allow the natural consequences of our actions to happen. Like when you're speeding, you get a ticket. This happens, right? The author, so, takes this another step and says, No, no, God actually presents God's self as an enemy to you when you have been disobedient. And so the Assyrian people are described as an object of wrath. You may not like this, but I I want to make sure you know it is most certainly what we read. It underlies that. Of course, what this represents is the age-old problem of, of God's justice and God's promise and how God can be powerful and let bad things happen. So, so it's okay to introduce this, hopefully. We'll return to this theme in about three weeks when we read the book of Job, which has a different perspective than this book, slightly. Uh, actually, extremely different. Um, there's, there's really three problems that are important to identify, and three conditions for this to be a problem. Number one, God has to be good. If God's not good, we know why bad things happen to people. God's not good. <laughs> um, God has to be powerful, sufficiently powerful to prevent, to prevent that from happening, right? So if God is weak or only semi-powerful, then we understand why bad things happen. God is not big enough. And the third condition is bad things have to be real. And that sounds strange, but, but you know, there are um, world religions that basically teach that suffering's illusory and we can detach from it and then it's not real. So so if, if suffering and evil are real and God is good and God's powerful, why does it happen? Again, take any one of those three things away and this is no longer a problem for us. But holding those three things together, it's problematic to understand how a good, powerful God who believes that suffering is real allows things like this to happen. So just keep that in mind as we read through some more tonight and in three weeks we're going to read Job. Okay? And at the end we'll get to some other strategies for, for, for how the Bible deals with that question. After the Assyrians take the land, remember that the view in a polytheistic culture is that there's plenty of different gods. Some of them have hegemony over specific geographies. Right? So hard to say that there's one all-powerful God. They all do different things. They all have different properties and terrain. Um, Notice that some lions come out and start mauling people, and the Syrian response is, oh, it's the God of the land not being appeased, and that reflects this belief that there is, in fact, a God who has um, territory or hegemony in northern Israel, and if you don't appease that God, then that God will engineer catastrophe on the people of the land. So the Assyrians send one of the conquered Levites or priests back to appease God. Uh, the, the Israelite and, and um, Judean people would have likely believed the same thing. They would have likely believed that the gods of the Assyrians had jurisdiction in Assyria, just not in their place. Does that make sense what I'm saying? which makes the story of the Exodus all that more remarkable because the God of Canaan and Israel has jurisdiction over all of Egypt. That would be a very bold statement to make. Um, when the Assyrians, and this is looking ahead, when the Assyrians did that population, a fruit basket turnover that I mentioned, what they created was a race and religion of people referred to in the New Testament as the Samaritans. So the Samaritans are this ethnic and religious hodgepodge of people who, uh, having lost their, their, their competent religious leaders, have held on to the customs as best as they remembered. Uh, the Samaritans worship on a mountain called Mount Gerizim. Uh, Mount Gerizim shows up in the Pentateuch, in the Torah, as a place where the Hebrew people worshipped. Jerusalem doesn't because they hadn't conquered it yet. Um, The Samaritans are a group that only ever read the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's their whole Bible. Later, the people in Judah will read the Psalms and the Proverbs and the Prophets and Ecclesiastes and Samuel. right? And what ends up happening is this bitter uh, disdain for one another. The people in Judah have decided they're elite, and the Samaritans are backwood hillbillies with superstitious religious customs. As a result, the Southerners pretty much hated the Samaritans to the point that if a Samaritan touched you, you would be unclean. If a Samaritan touched your food, it would be unclean, and if a Samaritan's shadow fell upon you, you would be unclean. So, at the time of Jesus, right, anytime you hear the word Samaritan, expect the incident to be a provocation of prejudice. That's always what happens. When a Samaritan shows up, they they sort of foil the prejudice um, because these people are formed right here at this time. Um, Contrary to the video, it's helpful to know there's two good kings in Judah. Josiah is probably the better of the two, but Hezekiah or Hezekiah is also quite a good king. Um, he also does a religious reform without finding any scroll. He just sort of knows something's not quite right. His, his reform um, involves pulling all the sort of the junk out of the house of the Lord. By junk, I mean the Asherah poles. Remember that the Asherah pole is a phallic symbol representing a Canaanite deity. The fact that they're in the temple means that the priests are... Complicit if they haven't engineered this idea that God has a a feminine sexual consort just like Baal does. Really what had happened before Hezekiah or Hezekiah is that instead of Baal, they just used God's personal name, (laughs) but they kept all the other things the same, if that sort of makes sense. Panoply of God's divine consort, um, fertility in heaven represents fertility on earth. So, in some ways, Hezekiah is trying to say, We're going to um, no longer operate under those conditions. Asherah, pole has gone. There's another interesting thing that's in the temple. I don't know if you noticed the bronze serpent Nehushtan. Um, we didn't read this, and I'm not sure why. But in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, in Numbers, the people are wandering through the desert, and sometimes they complain. They say things like, We're hungry. And how dare they say that when they're hungry so what god does is smite them with terrible terrible punishments and in one of the instances when the hungry people say they're hungry um god punishes them by sending like cobras and poisonous snakes to bite them and the people start perishing so they say to moses we're so sorry we're not really hungry yes we are and uh, <laughs> And Moses intercedes for them on behalf uh, of the people with God. And God says, well, look, look, Moses, just build a bronze snake and hold it up on a pole. And whoever looks at the pole will not die from the snakes. Notice the snakes don't go away. So uh, I think it's important to understand the picture. The snakes are continuing to bite the people. They just don't die from the snake bites. Now, this is a strange story because God has forbidden idolatry and then commanded Moses to make an idol. You should register that as strange. The strange the stranger I mean the reason I'm highlighting this is because Matthew's gospel has Jesus refer to the story and say just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness so the son of man will be lifted up and those who look to him will not perish just like you wouldn't die from the snake. Uh, the snake gets named. The name of the snake is Nehushtan. And when you name a snake on the pole, it's really important to recognize you've added it to the pantheon of gods. So no doubt that story in Deuteron- in, in Numbers is explaining why they were worshiping the bronze snake that they were worshiping as an idol. <laughs> and the Hezekiah destroys it. I hope I didn't lose you there. There's no way God told them to make a bronze snake. I just want to make sure that's really clear. (laughs) The story justifies why they had a bronze snake with a name that they were bowing down to and worshiping in God's temple. Um, This is where the Bible is strange sometimes. You don't even have to pay that careful of attention to know. Wait, God told them to make an idol? (laughs) That just seems inconsistent because it is. Anyway, Hezekiah tears it up. There's another thing Hezekiah does that's r- remarkable, and um, some people got to do this. Did anybody go down in the tunnel when we went? You guys didn't go. Oh, man, this was the highlight of the trip. This is the best part of going to Israel is going to Hezekiah's tunnel. Um, you know, in siege warfare, I told you it's a war of attrition. Try to get the water. You, you, can, you can handle food, uh, lack of food a lot longer than you can handle lack of water, as you know right, like you have one-tenth of, of the staying power with no water as you'd have with no food. Well, <coughs> um, the spring outside of Jerusalem was outside of the city walls, which meant during a siege, you'd have to say like, truce, just going to get some water, <laughs> and, and that would not work. So you could try to build a tunnel over it, like a guarded walled tunnel, but, but then you're telling the enemy where they should attack and where the, what they should poison. It turns out there's actually a significant spring outside Jerusalem called the Gihon Spring. Hezekiah gets the credit for building the tunnel, although it's likely older than he is. Um, But the significance of the tunnel is really important. Um, What happened is two different work teams started on two different sides and dug a a one-and-a-half-kilometer tunnel, which is almost a mile. Or it is a mile, isn't it? 0.9 miles. It's roughly 0.9 miles. They dug, this is without iron tools, they they dug on two different ends in a serpentine trajectory. It's not straight at all. And they met in the middle and were off by about an inch. Over the .9 miles, there's a two-inch grade. And so the water comes from the Gihon Spring all the way through this, it's called the Hezekiah's Tunnel, into the heart of Old Jerusalem, so then that the people could go down several stairs and bring water back up. And then they they tried their best to hide the spring from the eye so that the enemy could not poison it. And they were wildly successful. In fact, um, when Hezekiah is the king, the, the Neo-Assyrians lay siege to Jerusalem, and without the spring, most certainly would have won. The people would have capitulated or died or made some desperate break. And if that had happened, then the people of Judah also would have been dispersed among the nations. And we would not have the Bible. This is the tunnel that created the Bible. Because when the Babylonians took the people, the Babylonians took the literate people with their documents, who then produced the scrolls and the traditions that became the Bible. It really is that important. And Hezekiah gets the credit for that. Okay. Um, notice that the general Rebshika comes down and taunts the people, as I mentioned with horses. He makes a critical error in saying, listen, your God's not going to protect you. In fact, your God sent us. And even if God fought against our gods, your God can't win. And for that reason, not because of Hezekiah's righteousness, but because somebody else taunted that God couldn't win, God decided God had to win. <laughs> and then the... Neo Assyrians all go away. Um, Hezekiah tears his clothes. I just want to point out they have a different understanding. You know, it takes a whole year to make a garment, roughly. Talking about from here to up here, from trimming wool to combing it to spinning it to weaving it. When you tear a garment and there's not an iron on patch, I mean, even with an iron on patch, really difficult to fix a torn. Anybody had a wool sweater you tried to reweave? So, you know, that's kind of like an iron-on patch (laughs) because the careful eye will always see that patch. When somebody tore their garment, really what they're saying is that the cloth of our community has been irreparably damaged. Um, There's a rule, if you're Jewish, that when somebody dies in your community, you have to to tear your garments, and the, the rabbis have have given the the sort of the economic grant that you could carry a cloth in your pocket and tear that instead of tearing your actual garment because that's extremely valuable. Um, But but that that symbol is is pretty significant and it, it represents the community mentality that we don't necessarily have today that the loss of an individual is a rip in our social fabric. Um, Hezekiah gets really sick. He's going to die. He says, Isaiah, pray to your God. <laughs> Funny, he doesn't pray to God. Pray to your God, right? And, uh, and, and then Isaiah says, fine, listen, uh, I'll heal you. And what sign do you want? How about if my shadow would retreat? Right, so he gets that sign. And then Isaiah says, listen, uh, you got healed and all that, but um, your children are going to be bad, and God's going to destroy the nation. And Hezekiah says, as long as I don't have to see it. <laughs> Pretty cool parenting again, right? <laughs> That's the monarch with a heart for his people, <laughs> and he's about as good as they'd ever had since David. Although, as we talked, you know, David's real questionable in his goodness. Solomon equally really questionable in his goodness, right? So, so I would put for this is better than anybody they've had before. His kid is really the worst. So we keep reading about how so-and-so was, was the worst, like Omri was the worst, and then his son Ahab was the worst, and then Jehu was the worst. Everyone's the worst, but this is really the worst. <laughs> Manasseh, who um, really undoes all of the reforms, so he puts the Asher poles back into the temple. He uh, sacrifices his firstborn child to Milcom or Molech in the ben Hanum Valley by burning the child alive. Um, he... Um, He does some expansion things that Josiah then will go back and undo. So Manasseh really bad. Manasseh is so bad that God hits the nuclear option on Judah. The nuclear option is you'll be destroyed and there's only delaying the explosion. There's no undoing it. Manasseh is so bad that the future of Judah is irredeemable. Again, it's, it's helpful to stop and ask yourself, does God operate like that? Keep in mind that the whole people of Judah are condemned for the actions of a monarch that they themselves could not control. Does history work like that? Yes, (laughs) right? History works like that. Does God work like that is another question um Josiah becomes king as a young boy and he does something that even Hezekiah didn't do he starts to renovate the temple the house of the Lord because what do you know no one took care of it for a long long time and there's holes in the roof and there's mice running around and um, you can walk through walls because they've fallen down so he charges money and renovates it and in so doing he finds a scroll most scholars say this is probably some version of the book of deuteronomy that makes sense because deuteronomy means second law right it's a retelling of most of the contents of exodus and josiah reads about things that once again what do you know it's amazing that people hadn't been doing like celebrating the passover from time to time in the bible you have this sort of confusing situation moses they celebrate the passover they go out of egypt For the next 40 years in the desert, they didn't celebrate Passover again, even though it had been commanded to do it every year. That's what the book of Joshua says. They hadn't done it the whole time they were in the desert. Why Moses would lead the people in not celebrating Passover, one has to wonder. Joshua reinstitutes the rite. It doesn't seem to last very long because um, Josiah is unaware of anybody ever doing it. (laughs) And this is the most important religious festival if you're Jewish. Nobody had been doing it. It's strange strange um particularly if they had the book of exodus which also says do it and presumably they did um what is neat is that there's a prophet named holda that's a female who is the one who institutes the reforms and she says to josiah hey um your granddaddy manasseh was so bad god is going to destroy the whole nation but you won't have to see it (laughs) common theme um Josiah goes, um, he takes the reforms of his, uh, his, his, his great-grandfather to the next level. He doesn't just destroy the high places, he desecrates them. He commits sacrilege on them. So the priests who'd been offered, pagan priests, who'd been offering sacrifices on the altars, he kills them on the altars. And all the priests that have been buried, he brings their bones out and pees on them. I mean, <laughs> it's just really, really bad, right? Because how do you... How do you cleanse that defilement? I mean, he does the nuclear option to these things. Um, Just so you get an idea of how things had gotten worse under Manasseh, Manasseh had apparently not only reintroduced sacred temple prostitution to Jerusalem, remember that's where there's female priestesses that you have sex with in order to entice the gods to copulate in heaven so that there can be rainfall on earth, but Manasseh has also introduced male prostitution to the temple this is a very confusing thing and really nobody knows quite what it means I, I will tell you that a number of people i think rather foolishly say look see this is a condemnation against homosexual behavior but of course um I, i'm pretty outspoken in condemning any prostitution because that's not a relationship among equals right, so this this really is not about consenting adult relationships <laughs> it's about prostitution and in, in a religious setting So what we don't know is if this is male on male prostitution or, and this is likely what the text is saying, there were male priests who would have sex with female worshipers, and that's unprecedented in the ancient world. Males having sex with female priestesses had strong precedent. But the other way, that's confusing. We didn't know anybody was doing that, and that's likely what was happening in the temple of the Lord. So Josiah tears, tears down the bordillo <laughs> in, the, in the temple grounds, if that makes sense. Um, why he fights Nico, we, 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 we don't know. Just a reminder that Manasseh sacrifices his son in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. That's Hebrew, in Greek that's Gehenna. That's the word that gets translated as hell. It is a real geography. It's the relative minimum outside Jerusalem where all the refuse and blood from the temple go, but also hell is where you burn your children in worship of another god. That's exactly what hell means biblically. It does not mean where you are in torment, it's where you burn up your future to appease a god. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? (laughs) Um, After Nico kills Josiah, he decides to enslave Josiah's son, Jehoahaz. So he brings Jehoahaz back to Egypt to show that the kingdom, since the king belongs to him, so does the kingdom. Nico loses Carchemish in 606. Jehoiakim says, I'm the new king. Um, shoot, yeah, that's right. Jehoiakim gets taken by the Babylonians. The new king is Jehoiachin. <laughs> And then he gets replaced with Zedekiah or Zedekiah. Anyway, these monarchs don't even matter because they were ruling over four city blocks uh, as puppet kings. And, and that's the narrative that we read. Any questions about the narrative? <laughs> Did I skip over important things? Mm. Well, I think there's a there's a question, right? Sometimes we forget that a lot of the things that happen to us that we say bad are actually just in fact logical consequences of our behavior, right? Like, I just can't believe I got syphilis. Really? <laughs> you can't believe that after being, you know, sexually active with people you've never met? Like that, that didn't strike you as a risk? Well, not to me. I mean, and this is often what happens to us is we forget that while we know that there's danger, it won't happen to us, right? And so we, we confuse natural consequences with punishment sometimes. I hope that makes sense. I mean, the truth is natural consequences don't always happen to us, right? Like we've all run red lights and not gotten tickets for it. Not because we meant to, but... You know, we were just like, la, 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 oh, oh, and then you look for the police, and you're like, woo, thank God there's no police. And and you forget, like, God had nothing to do with the police not being there. They just weren't there, (laughs) right? I mean, so you were spared the natural consequences of your behavior um, randomly. I mean, I guess you could say, you know, I learned in the evangelical world that God caused everything to happen for a reason, so god didn't give me a ticket that day so i could give more money in church on sunday i never did <laughs> i was just more like praise god who save my money mm. yes in fact this is an important worldview that most of us don't share today um in the hebrew bible remember that good and bad things both come from god and we're uncomfortable with that right because That just is confusing. And the reason we're uncomfortable is actually because in the year 540, when the Persians take over uh, the Neo-Babylonians, they introduced their religion called Zoroastrianism to the Hebrew people. And in the Zoroastrian religion, the universe hangs in the balance slightly between evil forces and good forces who are always fighting one another. That was a new idea. The evil and the good just both came from God. But now they've been bifurcated, and most Christians, whether they tell you they believe this or not, really share the Zoroastrian mindset instead of the biblical one. The evil forces are demons and the devil, and the good forces are angels and God. And what, you know, my, my evangelical teachers forgot was, where did the devil come from? Well, the Bible's very clear that all created things were created by God. So, So maybe the devil is this evil entity but God made it. Oops. <laughs> right, this is a little bit of a problem, you know. So so in some ways, we adopt that model and we make the devil really strong so that all the bad stuff comes from one bad thing and then and then there's just all good God. And, and really, you know, um, we'll talk about this more when we get to Job, but it's really helpful to think about, you know, Things that we think are evil are sometimes just natural things, you know, like hurricanes and earthquakes. You know, actually the tectonic plates are designed to make earthquakes to relieve tension. Without them, the world would sort of blow up. <laughs> um, that's just inconvenient for human people who live on fault lines. <laughs> but it's not really evil. It's just really not good for us, y- y- you know. Uh, and, and, and sometimes we'll go ahead and call it evil when it's maybe of a different category. That's why philosophers call that natural evil. Uh, biblically, though, and, and, and this is important, you know, sometimes we have this mindset that everything was perfect and then humans ruined it, or, or you know, after the fall is when things got bad. You know, but, but you just got to consider, did the saber-toothed tiger, was that ever a vegetarian? I mean I don't think so they they can't chew green things. I mean they only have incisors. Their whole mouth is full of incisors. So maybe they could put those long fangs in a melon and drink the juice, but, but friends clearly they were created as predators. You know, so this idea that they were only vegetarians in Eden doesn't hold up to the fossil record. I mean God created this food chain and and, and well that's inconvenient for rabbits. But that's how God made things. And then even worse, right, is, is things like viruses, because those are really inconvenient for us. But, but the Bible's clear, God created those things. And the, the devil, or the forces of evil, whatever you call it, can't create anything. And, and that means God made cancer cells, which while not good for human beings, are really good at what they do. They grow faster than anything that there is, right? Cancer cells and viruses are just really fast. Um, I say that as a person who do doesn't have cancer, right? But, but um, you know, cancer is not a punishment. <laughs> we, we, we know that. It's something that, that God made, though, and that, that's sort of important to hold on to biblically, that, that, that there's no being that can create germ cells. This, all that stuff came from God. Uh, and I don't and I think this is extremely tangential to what we're reading, these these readings are asking questions like, how can there be suffering in our kingdoms when God promised us this stuff? How is it that, that foreign nations can overrun God's house? Some people conclude it's because God was too weak. Jeremiah will say God left the house so there was no spirit of God to defend the place. And this is a similar question that people asked after 1945 who were Jewish, which is, why'd the Holocaust happen? And you know, depending on what community you're in, you came up with different answers. If you were, um, some Orthodox folks have said, it's God's punishment for Reformed Judaism. <laughs> we would become too lax and liberal in our ways. That might sound crazy to you, but... Uh, I remember distinctly reading on September 12th, 2001, Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell said that the reason the terrorists flew planes into the World Trade Center was because God was punishing America for the NAACP, the ACLU, and for granting gay people civil rights. Now, many of you think, well, those people are crazy too. Sure, but they had a big following big following, and flagrantly said something nuts, but akin to this theology, that the people in those plains were God's instruments of wrath on a nation that was unrepentant and uh, disobeyed God's precepts. That's what the logical extension of this theology looks like in the world today i don't I don't like it I just want to make sure you know i don't I don't like it, even though I live it at certain moments, yes, sir <laughs> mm mm-hmm. mhm-. Oh, but the world's only 6,000 years old. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, y- y- this, this is where all that stuff becomes really, really difficult. Yeah, it does. It does. I appreciate you saying that, right? I, I do. I do. And, and, and this is where it becomes difficult to dialogue about, right? Because um, when you start asking about where bad things come from, that's a really uncomfortable religious question. I, I mean, it is. And, and things like viruses, which we know cause suffering in our lives, I mean, in our lives, To say that God had a hand in that is really difficult for us to get our minds around. Of course not. So only the bad ones are bad. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to leave that discussion, unless you want to stay on it some more. (laughs) And move over to, I do want to tell you something really interesting, though. Uh, just, just discuss. you know, I, I, I went to Emory, which is 40% Jewish, so it's like the NYU of Atlanta, even though it's a Methodist school. And uh, <laughs> Emory had this really interesting teacher, David Blumenthal. Uh, he's, he's, he's from the Jewish tradition, was raised Orthodox uh, and teaches Jewish studies there at, at, at Emory. And his, his thought about God after the Holocaust was that God is an abusive parent. So, so, good sometimes, and then fits of mania, extreme punishment, and then, as with all abusers, makes up lavishly for the abuse. So this is an interesting, <laughs> an interesting book, actually. Again, this is how Jewish people relate to the Holocaust. Really, really, really tough. Tough thing to read. Bipolar? Sort of. I mean, you don't have to be bipolar to be abusive. Can have a lot more compassion for bipolar abusive people than the (laughs) non-ones. Let's move to Jeremiah then. So we got to read some excerpts of Jeremiah, and we'll get to read a few more, just a few words. As I've already mentioned to you, Jeremiah, most likely illiterate or could have been taken. Um, Jeremiah is uh, this interesting book that is in and out of sequence. So there's things that happen in chapter two that post-date things that happen in church, Chapter 33, it, it's almost like there was a ream of paper going to the editor, and the person was walking downstairs and was like, oh, and, <laughs> and they just sort of scraped the papers back together and turned them into the editor, and that's Jeremiah. <laughs> um, there are some wonderful images in, in Jeremiah, um, and, and of course, Jeremiah asked really early on what we read, Geez, you know, we're so wounded and bleeding, is there a bomb in Gilead? And how interesting that an oppressed people group in the American South came up with a response to that. There is a bomb in Gilead, right? Jeremiah doesn't know if there is one and slaves in the American South are confident there is. I mean, that's sort of a lovely song, right? Uh, The problem with uh, the people is essentially that they're shameless. Once again, we've, we've heard prophets indict this before. They call things good that are evil, and they keep going around saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Um, It's almost, again, like they're saying that something that is completely um, anxious and uh, doomed is peaceful. They're so out of touch with reality that they don't even know how to describe the lives that they're living in accurately. Jeremiah does a few different things that are symbolic. One of them we didn't get to read about, but he takes a jug and smashes it on the ground. Now keep in mind, this is before super glue. And even with super glue, I would challenge you to break an entirely ceramic jug and have that function for you again. (laughs) Very, very unlikely to, to, to work. And of course, you're probably wondering, Who cares? (laughs) You know, like, who cares that he broke a jug? I break jugs all the time. Jeremiah publicly takes the jug and says, this is Israel! And again, you're probably wondering, who cares? Just go on with your lives. But see, in the ancient world, that's, that's a strand in the community fabric of life. And the strand, you can't snip it out. It's part of the fabric. So all strands have to be heeded and respected. And now here's somebody saying, our fabric is doomed, that's like dooming the fabric. So saying that we're going to be blown up is sort of like pushing the launch button. We don't relate to words or actions that way. We just say, you're crazy. That's that's what we do, but totally different cultural context. Jeremiah makes a a yoke of wood and says, here's your reality. (laughs) Wear the yoke of wood. The next chapter that we didn't read is when uh, the court-paid prophet says Jeremiah, you're nuts, and he breaks the yoke on his knee. So Jeremiah makes a yoke out of iron and says, break this. <laughs> uh, you thought the wood was bad. God's decided to make it heavier than before because you wouldn't listen. Um, he ends up being considered a deserter because he tells the king, surrender or die, and goes out to the, uh, the um Now we're talking about the Babylonian Empire, not the Assyrian one. So they throw him in a cistern, which is like a mud pit, and he's rescued by somebody called Ebed-Melech. That's not a name. That means servant of the king. So so somebody pulls Jeremiah out of the mud. The king, you notice, is extremely afraid of the Judeans. So he goes to Judeans. More about that in a second. He goes to Jeremiah in secret and says, "Tell me, tell me God's will in secret. And Jeremiah says, you're going to die if you don't surrender. Okay, thanks. <laughs> and then he stages the rebellion anyway. Right? An interesting person. Um, Judeans, that is a geography. That means the people from Judah. And hithertofore, we call them the kingdom of Judah. Once they go into exile, then they're called the Jews for the first time. So I have not used that word to describe the people of the territory or the religion. After 586, we can say the Jews for the first time historically. Um, Jeremiah ends up, we think, being taken captive to Egypt by the people who somehow flee the uh, Babylonian advance. They go to a place called Elephantine, that's a relatively large island near Aswam in the Nile, so that's pretty pretty far south of, of the major population center. And some legends say that's where they took the Ark of the Covenant, which is why in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark they dig for the ark in Egypt, not in Israel. Where is the ark really? Uh, it probably got melted in that year. Uh, if it was covered in gold, the Babylonians certainly would have taken it as a valuable commodity and melted it down. Um, that's about it for Jeremiah. We didn't read uh, just bit a bit, and we'll get to read some more uh, next week. Jeremiah um, theoretically also wrote the book Lamentations, and we got to read a bit of that. Uh, where Jeremiah says the problem with the people is that they have rejected knowledge and the willingness to be educated. So these are people that refuse to learn anything, even from their mistakes. Um, he does call the city of Jerusalem Ariel. Just it's, Jerusalem has many epithets, like Zion and Ariel. I'm uh, just introducing that one to you. Jeremiah uh, Lamentations has this really interesting phrase um, that says, it's not by the might of horses that you'll be delivered, it's in returning and rest that we are saved, in returning and rest. Uh, You'll find that phrase most often used as a canticle at healing services. If you've ever been to a healing service, it's often a phrase, in returning and rest we are saved. This word returning is better translated repentance. Remember, uh, turn is a way of repenting, that's the word shuv in Hebrew. So it's not by might, it's in repenting and in rest. Um, Lamentation says, you know, uh, Jerusalem, personified as Ariel, uh, had all these love affairs with different deities, and then on the day of decision, was abandoned by their lovers. And of course, that, that word lover refers to not only that they loved other gods, but to the temple prostitution practices as well. On the day of decision, the Lord was like an enemy to the city of Jerusalem. Interesting image, right? That God, instead of protecting, actively fought against God's own people. And then in the middle comes this great thing, right? That's a wonderful hymn and shows up at funerals. But great is thy faithfulness. The Lord will not, the Lord causes wrath but for a season. You can notice that God's the one who causes wrath. It's interesting that we use that at funerals because very few of us believe that God kills the dead person that we're mourning. But but in the book of Lamentations, that would be the direct extension of the verse. Calamities, blessings, everything happens at God's will. At the end, there's a plea uh, for mercy, and that's Lamentations. It's a pretty doleful book, right, as the title suggests. <laughs> yes, sir. I don't know the answer. Um, In in the Hebrew Bible, in general, God is is sort of actively controlling events, and this is actually one of the interesting differences between Pharisees and Sadducees, whether or not events are fixed, or whether or not there's some sort of free will in the universe. Uh, Interesting, because that's a debate among Christian people, right? Uh, Extreme adherents to the Calvinist viewpoint believe that everything's fixed, and in that way, you see there's no challenge to God's sovereignty because God controls everything. So people can be instruments of wrath because that's what God designed them to be. Um, I was, I think, destined not to believe that (laughs) because I don't. Um, Of course, on the other side, the difficulty is that if people have free will, then God submits to our will. Interesting theological proposition for you, isn't it? If we have free will, that means even God submits to our will. Otherwise, it wouldn't be free. Oh, submits. That's, isn't that what I said? Submits. Oh, I could pick another word. God suffers suffers our choices. Would that be better? <laughs> Which is a form of submission, don't you think? I stand by my word choice. You know, that's one of the that's one of the mysteries. It's one of the mysteries of the incarnation, isn't it, right? If Jesus ever did some divine stuff, he wasn't human anymore. Because humans don't do divine stuff. We do human stuff. <laughs> so if Jesus on the night of prom used his divine nature to remove that pimple from his forehead, he ceased being a human being at that point. Interesting to chew chew on that. Chew on that one for a while. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, glad you asked. So the question is: Did Jesus do that himself, or did God do that through him? You know, so did Elijah bring the dead boy back to life himself, or did God do that through Elijah? And this is the important difference. It might seem subtle, but it's relatively important. That is, if Jesus acted like any other prophet, then he can still be a human being. If he did it of his own right, then he can't. This is the kind of hair splitting you would do if you were Thomas Aquinas, and then we would talk about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. And of course, the answer is none, because we know that um, dancing leads to premarital sex. So... um, (laughs) And then that takes us back to Isaiah just for one chapter, right? One chapter of Isaiah, um, who once again excoriates the clergy for being drunk and so drunk that they vomit. (laughs) This is why God brings calamity on the nation. It's those darn priests. Uh, But Isaiah has a little bit more hope than the words we read in, 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 in Jeremiah. Isaiah says, you know, the people have made a covenant with death. They've cut a covenant with death, and in spite of that, God will annul the covenant. That's an interesting phrase. They've cut a covenant with death. You may not like that phrase, but I sort of think, in modern terms, that's what we mean by living in hell. You know, when we, we have interludes in hell on earth, those are covenants that have been cut with death, capital D, on our behalf or we entered into that free willingly. You know, Sometimes we cut covenants with death ourselves. Sometimes we're forced into those covenants. Death with a capital D being the felt separation from God. I, I hope that makes sense. The seeds of all that stuff I'm saying are, are, are in the Hebrew Bible. <laughs> it, it, this isn't something I'm making up. I just wanted to go through, right? And, and this is where the Bible is very existential. Um, there's one other fun fact that I wanted to give you that you might just think is me being obnoxious. That's okay. <laughs> um, you know, the, does anybody know who the leader of the Babylon, Neo-Babylonian Empire is? Anybody know? Ah, Nebuchadnezzar. This is this really important thing I learned as a, as a young boy. Keep in mind, I grew up a Christian fundamentalist, right? So essentially, instead of worshiping God, I worship the Bible. And what we, what we learned in, in my upbringing was that it, the Bible had no mistakes. And if the Bible had one mistake, then it was entirely useless because you could no longer trust the whole book. Y- has anybody ever heard that logic? You may disagree with it. I hope you do because that's like how children think. Adults don't think that way. Uh, just, just, that's just not how our brains work. Well, it turns out that um, there has never been somebody called Nebuchadnezzar in the history of the world. There was a Babylonian king called Nebuchadnezzar. And you may say, Mike, that's just darn obnoxious. Who cares? Well, the truth is, uh, the Bible has his name wrong. So if you're a biblical inerrantist, if the Bible has no errors in it, I'm sorry, I just ruined it for you. Uh, and, and, and this one letter then would totally ruin the value of Scripture for you. Uh, thanks be to God, right, that the Bible is not God. <laughs> it's not. And that, um, wow, a little mistake like that doesn't compromise the theological conversation the Bible constantly invites us to join into. Well, that's what I think anyway. Of course, when I taught this at the fundamentalist high school, they ended up firing me for being an Episcopalian. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The students were extremely confused, and they would say, well, maybe they just called Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar in the south and then the Bible would still be wrong. I just, I, just, I just want to point that out. Okay, that was me being really obnoxious. Please forgive me. Um, a, 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 any questions for our readings tonight? Or thoughts? Hope you had a little more fun, right? Uh, it's a shorter reading than, than week nine. That was still really the longest one ever. Um, next week, we're going to get to read some interesting selections from uh, prophets, including uh, different Isaiahs, a little bit more from Jeremiah, just a little bit, and Ezekiel, and I want to warn you that the beginning of Ezekiel is extremely strange. And uh, in, in when you read about the wheel and the wheel and the wheel covered with eyeballs, just read that and keep going, and we'll just talk about it briefly. Um, that's a mystical passage, and if you're not into, like, the Kabbalah, which I don't think you are, um, it's just going to be weird. The other thing I have to tell you is next week's day, the time is the same. Next week's day has to move to Tuesday. Tuesday. So we'll be from 7 to 8.30 on Tuesday. If you come at 6.30, we'll be toasting St. Nicholas that day uh, ahead of his saint's day on the 6th. We'll have some glue wine, which is like the German heated spiced wine so we can properly toast a non-German saint who has become German, interestingly enough. And, uh, and then and we'll have steady from from 7 to 8.30. Thanks and see you next week.